All right, so well, if you've been here for a little while, um, you have been through the book of Ruth. We are reaching the end of the book itself and our exposition. Um, and if you haven't been here for a while, if this is your first week, um, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of the book of Ruth, because that's how most of you got through high school anyway. So um, you'll, be, you'll be very used to this. Um, and if you have been here, this will be a uh, delightfully practical recap of the book. Um, so as Rick mentioned earlier in, his, uh, in, in our corporate reading introduction, that um, as like most of Scripture, uh, we, it is read on multiple levels. Um, I think instinctively when we open a book, we read the words on the page and we think, okay, that is what it is. And there's certainly, we do read the words on the page and those have some meaning, but we are not the primary audience of these books. And so when the original readers of the book of Ruth, or uh, any of the books in the Bible for that matter, read these texts, there are things that they understand historically, things that they understand culturally, um, things that don't, aren't immediately apparent to us. And so that's why we spend time working through these books. We spend time um, peeling back the, the layers. So uh, we're going to look at some of those, those uh, layers today. Um, and this is the order in which we should read them. We're going to look at the, um, the uh, familial, like what is actually happening with the actual people in the text. There is something there. And then we're going to broaden it a little bit. Like wh- what is happening within the historical context that's significant? And then what is God uh, teaching us spiritually? Like, are there some spiritual lessons that are further underneath the surface? And then we will close and land with some practical, personal application for ourselves. So, uh, number one, on the surface, this is a family story. These are real people with real problems. And I think that's why this book has resonated with so many of us. Because it's a very human book. Um, There are very human situations. We all have hopes, we all have fears, um, we, we face death, we face hunger, we face, face sur- survival, our struggle to belong, our um, hopes and anticipations for the uh, future, our desire for a happy ending. Um, Ruth is filled with all of those, of those things. So I, I want to recap it just from the surface familial level first. Number one, to kind of set the stage, the book begins with all the guys die. Uh, Spoiler alert, uh, no men survive out of chapter one. And this leaves three widows in a foreign land without without providers, without, without protectors. And so then they have to go back to their their homeland. Um, Two of them are foreign women. One of them, Ruth, who the book is named after, she's the outsider. Her counterpart, her, um, who married another one of the, the sons, Orpah, she heads back. But Ruth makes this covenant, makes this commitment with Naomi. And um, it's embodied in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Where Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. So we begin with this image of death. And then Ruth saying, 
that only death will separate me from you. There's a book, there's a word that is thread throughout the entire Old Testament that appears several times within the book of Ruth. We've talked about it. The Hebrew word chesed. It is a word for covenant faithfulness. It is a word for steadfast love. It is a word for, for continuing. Doing what you say you were going to do because you love the people that you love. And so Ruth, in her chesed, Boaz recognizes it later. She shows it to Naomi here. But in it, she is called daughter by both her mother-in-law and the man who would one day be her husband. And uh, so just give you an example how this word is used in chapter 3, verse 10. Boaz says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last chesed greater than the first that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So Naomi is this honorable young woman. Boaz is this honorable older man. He steps in. Um, he comes to the rescue as the family savior, lowercase s. That's what a redeemer is. A kinsman redeemer comes in for those who are closest to him in biological relation. He's the, he's the family savior. He is the answer when women in that culture have no one to care for them or uh, provide for them. And so he steps into that, that, that role. And so through this whole process, we, we follow Ruth's journey. And her journey is from losing a husband. And then going into a land that she doesn't know, relying on the Lord, seeking refuge from him. Boaz recognized this in chapter 2. And through seeking refuge from the Lord, she finds refuge in a new and better husband to replace the one that she lost before. There's also another undercurrent. Behind the scenes, Naomi, as her mother-in-law, is orchestrating all these things. She has a desire for rest. Chapter 1, verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest. She wants to send them back to Moab because she knows at least there she'll be in her father's home. And at least there she'll have an opportunity for a husband. She doesn't know if any Israelite man would have her. And so this desire to have a home and to have a place to belong is something that Naomi desires for her. Even before she sends her out on this wild plan to go lay down at the feet of Boaz in the middle of the night, chapter 3, verse 1, she says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well for you? The desire for Naomi, the personal rest, the husband that she is, is lacking, we see all this come together at the end of the book. And we also see this beautiful picture of that union being blessed and the joyous celebration of a child. There are many other familial themes here. There's the, the undercurrent of compassion for widows, caring for those who can't care for them, the, them themselves. But there's a greater concern throughout this entire book. The great familial concern throughout all of Ruth is the continuing of the family name. That is why a husband is needed. That is why the, the, uh, the uh, baby and the birth are the, the, the culmination of, of the book. 
And if that was all there is, this is a great story. This is like the uh, perfect script, script for a Hallmark movie in the 90s. Right, it's it's got it's got everything. It's got the uh, widow, the dashing guy who you know comes to her, her her rescue, and everything ends up happy in the end. But there's so much more. So let's pick up in chapter 14, and we'll begin to peel back the layers as we go a step further. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nishon. Nishon fathered uh, Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, would you bless the reading and teaching and proclaiming of your word this morning. That all of my words be pleasing in your sight. And when anything that originates in, in me, anything that would be distracting or unhelpful, uh, Lord, would you remove it? Would you strike it from the memories of the hearers here? Uh, Lord, would your spirit work through my voice, through the hearts and minds of your people, to stir up affections for our Redeemer, to work in the heart and mind of anyone here who does not know you, that it is only by your spirit that they are given ears to hear, that they are granted eternal life, Would this be the day of their salvation? Would this be the day that they know their Redeemer? Would this be the day that they see that the son of Boaz and Ruth leads to King David and will become the son of David, the son of God, the Redeemer, the Lamb slain for the forgiveness of sins before the foundation of the world, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Jesus Christ, the Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so you may ask, okay, why end the book in a genealogy? Um, Many argue, and I would as well, that the genealogy is actually the purpose of the book. The genealogy is the culmination of everything that has come before. Um, I remember the first time I heard this book preached, It was very practical and it was very engaging and it made me excited about the book of Ruth. And then he just skipped over the genealogy. And I was like, what? You have missed the point, my friend. We are not going to miss the point this morning. Why is the genealogy so important? Um, Like every character in, in, in scripture, they have something to teach us. There's some example that we learn from, either positive or negative, 
But like pieces on a chessboard, they advance, they retreat, they live, they, they die, but they are only important and useful because of the hand that wields them. And those pieces on the chessboard, they only move for a moment. They only live for a moment. And then they die and another game is set up. And another series of uh, pieces are set up. But this sovereign hand is always moving by his own strategy. And whether you are a pawn, whether you are a bishop, whether you are a rook, you can only do what you can do. You can move straight, you can move diagonally, you can move in a 7 or an L, however you, you think of that. But that's all you can do, and that's all you know, and that's all you are designed to do. But there is a master player, there is a chess master who is moving these pieces around. And I like how Leon Morris explains this. Uh, speaking of genealogies, he says, he says, God works out his purpose, generation after generation. Limited as we are to one lifetime... Each of us sees little of what happens. A genealogy is a striking way of beginning before us, or bringing, excuse me, before us the continuity of God's purpose throughout the ages. The process of history is not haphazard. There is a purpose in it all, and the purpose is the purpose of God. So genealogies show us God's purpose from generation to generation. Because every man on this list probably only met one or two other men on this list. Well, he's certainly met two other men on this list. Um, but maybe not more. So this phrase, these are the generations. A similar phrase like, like this accompanies every significant genealogy in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and First Chronicles. Those are all very his, important historical books. And Ruth. This little book here is included in the genealogy of the history of Israel. This little book here is significant on a historical level. Um, why are there ten names here? There's a lot of speculation. Uh, but ten, or, um, or numbers of, of, of ten, are pretty standard uh, genealogical uh, frameworks. So we're just going to go with that. that um, that's pretty standard grouping. There are ten names. Um, but it's interesting. You go back ten generations, it starts with Perez. Um, if you were here two weeks ago, we went into Genesis 38 a little bit. Uh, if you want to go back and read more on your own, you, you can. But this is interesting because the promise for the kingly line was given to Judah. Judah is not a likely hero. Perez is the son of Judah, not a likely birth. Um, just to kind of give you the uh, high notes, Perez is the son of an illicit affair between Judah and his stepdaughter, Tamar. But it's okay um, because he thought she was a prostitute and she hid her identity. So that, that, makes, it all, that makes it all all right. Perez um, cheats his way out, gets the uh, first son's birthright. But this goes a little bit deeper. Because the same issue at play in Ruth, that of leveret marriage... Where if one son dies, the next son has an obligation to carry on the family line with his brother's wife. Tamar's husband dies. His brother forbids to do it, does some other, other things we're not going to get into. Um, and refuses to be the father of uh, any children with, with, with her. She demands 
from Judah. Uh, will, you, w- w- will you provide for me a husband? He kind of lets it slip his, his, his mind. She forces the issue. She deceives him, takes advantage of his uh, lusts. And now we have Perez. And this is the man who starts this genealogy. I think this is striking because Boaz is a man who steps in as a kinsman redeemer. As his forefather should have. But he does it honorably. And so now he brings healing and he brings honor to that family line. And now the family line goes through him instead of the faithless Elimelech who dies in Moab. So that's an interesting character. Um, The rest of these we don't know too much about. There's one more interesting character before we get to David. uh, Salmon. Interesting name. Uh, Not much else is said about him here. But Matthew tells us a little bit more about him, which is interesting, which will kind of tie all this together. Matthew chapter 1, it'll be on the screen, but if you want to turn there quickly, you can. We're going to look at 5 and 6. Or the very, very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew begins with a genealogy. Um, We'll talk more about that in a moment. But look at this genealogy here. Salmon is the father of Boaz. Okay, we're good so far. By Rahab. Um, Sunday school quiz, anyone know who Rahab is? Rahab, another prostitute, is the woman in Jericho who lets in the spies, who saves the life of herself and her family so that they can come in and ransack everybody she knows and everything she's ever grown up with. She aligns herself with the people of God because she has heard the name of the Lord and what he's done, and she's terrified. This woman is Boaz's mom. We hear nothing else about Rahab after the book of Joshua. But now, she also is in the line. Earlier on, so is Tamar. Matthew brings up Tamar in verse 3. Rahab in verse 5. And Ruth. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Matthew is giving commentary all through his genealogy. You think Boaz knows what it means for a foreign woman to feel out of place? You also think Boaz knows what it means for a foreign woman to be welcomed in? That he was such a revered member of society, even though his mom? Can you imagine the guy who marries the prostitute from Jericho? That's his lineage. And, um, and Boaz ended up doing pretty well for himself. So this is all so layered and, and, and amazing in the uh, historical context. But here's what I want you to see in all that. Is that by this one little story of redeeming a family... The Lord redeems an entire nation. The entire arc of Old Testament history, the entire arc, the the climbing of Mount Everest, if you will, of the people of Israel, the very peak, the pinnacle, is David. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the, the, the greatest king in Israel. Everything leads up to David the king. And everything after David is a slow, rocky descent. 
They, you know, just like going down a, a mountain, you may walk down for a little bit. It may come up for a moment, but never reach peaks as high as David. This little book shows us how we get to David. This little book also, we saw this in verse 1, this is the transition between the, the, the time of the judges when there was chaos and there was no structure and there was no clear leadership. This little book sits between Judges and 1 Samuel. It is the transition between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. Not only does it transition us, but it sets us up for the greatest king that Israel will see in their, their nation's history. And we also can't forget the context. Where does this all happen? To a little family in a little known time in history in a little town of Bethlehem. Remember what Bethlehem means? House of bread. This happens in a time of death and famine where God calls them in. He provides bread. And through the calling, through bread, he provides a child. He provides new life. He provides hope. He provides a future. Also, in the same town of Bethlehem, a couple 1,500 years later, he provides a child who will provide bread. He himself being the bread of light, life and the light of the world. He himself being the future hope for generations. He himself being his own spiritual genealogy. He is the hope of Israel. The greater king will be, will be born in the same line under similar uh, circumstances. Matthew 2, 5 through 6, here's what the uh, wise men say about Bethlehem. Quoting from Micah the prophet, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They told him, this is uh, Matthew 2, verse 5. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are you by no means least among the rulers of Judah? For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Later on in Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John, there's a debate. Because Jesus is called a Galilean. But in questioning Jesus... They also recognize the, the true prophecy, which they don't realize he fulfills as well. John chapter 7, verse 42. As they are arguing, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Verse 42. Has the scripture said, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? And from Bethlehem, the village where David was. When Jesus is preaching, when he tells them, I am living water. When he is preaching in the midst of the Passover feast, a division arises among the people of Israel. They're saying he's the Christ, but we know the prophecies. The prophecies say he needs to be from the line of David and from the town of David. They miss what is right in front of them. They miss history being unraveled before them. And because Israel rejected them, he is the savior of Israel, but not just Israel. He is the Savior and the hope for the entire world. There is only one Savior. There is only one Redeemer. 
while the redemption of Boaz led to a son who 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 led to to Christ. The redemption of Christ the Redeemer led to many sons of glory. And what this should remind us of when we read a genealogy like this and we get into these uh, scandals and all this, it reminds us that Jesus came into a line of people just like people he came to save. He didn't come into a perfect line. The people in his own genealogy needed salvation just as much as we do. The sinful, the lost, the scandalous. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a reminder. The gospel is not for good people and people who have it all together. It's for us. The sinful, the prostitutes, the the liars, the lustful, the adulterers. Not to continue in those things, but to be redeemed from those things. Here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? He didn't leave them in this state. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. We don't read these genealogies to feel self-righteous. Well, I've never done that. And I want to tell you this morning, and such were all of you. But in Christ, because of our Redeemer, if we're covered by His blood, you are washed. You are made clean by the blood of the Lamb that was poured out on the cross. You are sanctified. His own righteousness sets you apart for His kingdom and for His service. You are justified. Standing before the great white throne of judgment. You are declared innocent. You are declared to be free of all charges because Christ took your sin and gave you his innocence. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When we look at the depravity that we see in the Old Testament, it reminds us how much they needed a Savior and how much we needed a Savior and why we needed a Redeemer. And then when the genealogies lead us up to Christ, it shows us how great our redemption is. Because not only does He redeem our family line and name In our circumstances, he redeems our souls, redeems our eternal life. And so by this little story, a son coming to a family in Bethlehem, it is hope for redemption for the Jews in Naomi. It is hope for redemption for the Gentiles in Ruth. And it foreshadows what we've been studying in the book of Acts. That now, because of a son, the gospel goes to Every nation. Because of a son, there is a redeemer. And not just the son of Salmon, the son of God. Who redeems everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. 
So in all of this buildup and all the, the um, historical track we've been going on this morning, um, so I mentioned last week, this is why we're going into the life of David next, um, which will lead us to the line of Christ in Matthew. And as I mentioned, Matthew begins with a genealogy. Matthew begins with the words, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does Matthew begin with a genealogy? Why are genealogies so important? Number one, because in an oral culture, they don't have Ancestry.com. You need to keep track of these things because what line you were in, what family you were in was vitally important. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And Matthew wants to prove and solidify that Jesus is indeed a son of David. He is indeed in the line of Judah. He is indeed a son of Abraham by, by righteousness, but also by birth. Luke also includes a genealogy in chapter 3. But Luke, a Gentile, writing to a Gentile audience, takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam, the son of God. So that when the Gentile readers read about all of these miracles and these divine claims, they don't think he's just some God. They realize he's not only God, but he's actually a man. He goes all the way back to Adam, all the way to the very beginning, all the way to the first life. So that he might become the true and better Adam. And so for us, through faith, when we read genealogies, in Christ, we are united to Abraham. We are united to David. But most importantly, because Christ is our brother, he unites us to our heavenly father. Through the genealogy of Christ, we are called sons of God. All right. So we looked at the familial, the historical. Um, I want to look at some spiritual parallels for a moment. I want to give you just a, um, you got four little dots there in your outline. Um, just a brief phrase for uh, each chapter. And, and I kind of want to tell you what I mean by spiritual here. This is application for the redeemed. Application for those who Paul talked about, who are washed, who are sanctified, who are justified. How do we see the, the parallels in a book like Ruth with our own spiritual journey? With what God does in all of his people, how he cares for? How do we see the chesed, the steadfastness of God himself in the book of Ruth? Chapter 1, trial and turning. Any humans in the room dealt with trial, dealt with difficulty? Um, it's part and parcel with it. But how many of us in the room have a testimony that it was because of difficulty, it was because of trial, it was because of affliction that we turned, that we repented and came to the Lord, that we saw the, the, the uh, misery and the futility of our life of sin. The Lord uses difficulty to lead to our repentance. We're reminded in chapter 1 with all of this death that we are called to die to ourselves, to die to the world, to die to the things that would draw us away from the Lord and leave them behind. That's why the, the theme 
of chapter 1 is trial and turning. Chapter 2, providence and potential. There's so many great details here about uh, Ruth just happens to wander upon Boaz's uh, land. There just happens to be this wealthy, generous, eligible bachelor who happens to be in the family line. And there's potential there. The anticipation builds within chapter 2. But here's the uh, spiritual lesson in this. Ruth leaves all behind to follow the Lord. And when we leave all to, behind to follow the, the Lord, trusting in him, even if it's, if it's something as insignificant as gleaning, he guides our steps. The Lord is guiding the steps of his people wherever they go. Our job is not to have all the answers. We can't. We are one piece on the chessboard. But we have a chess master who is guiding our steps. And like Ruth, we are called to be faithful. Even if it's gleaning, even if it's picking up leftovers. Because we know God is good and we know God is sovereign. Chapter 3, the plan, the proposal, and the provision. We know that Naomi sends Ruth with her plan into uh, Boaz's threshing floor in the middle of the night. Boaz gives an ancient Near Eastern proposal by laying down at his feet and asking him to grant her shadow under his wings. And the Lord provides through Boaz's provision when he agrees because she's an honorable woman. Here's the spiritual lesson in this. The Lord blesses those who ask and seek and knock in humility. She listened to her mother. She honored her mother. And he honors the obedience of his people. And he often does it through the obedience of his people. This is a beautiful picture of how the Lord uses Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz all individually to come to a conclusion that it is good for all of them and it brings God the most glory. Chapter 4 is one of redemption and restoration. Boaz shows himself to be a true and worthy redeemer, but also a selfless redeemer. He's not thinking about himself like the one who stood before him in line. A selfless redeemer is needed. A true redeemer stands in the place of the helpless. And that redeemer gives of himself. He brings them into his home. He gives them a new name, a new inheritance, and he gives them future hope. He restores what they have lost and gives them so much more. So we've looked at the familial the historical, and the spiritual levels. Um, but what about for us? We've spoken in a lot of generalities so far. I do want to spend some time bringing this, this home uh, because when we get into the book of Ruth, the Christian experience jumps off of the page. Uh, and I've had a lot of great conversations with many of you and i uh, got a lot of great feedback. And um, when people ask, you know, what we're doing next week and what preparation looks like, 
usually one of my answers is I'm just trying to narrow it down. I had to throw so much away. There's so much more to handle. And I've heard this at least five times. Uh, slow down. We're not going anywhere. Uh, this, is, this is good. Let's do more. Um, so I'm listening. And um, we're going to do something we have not done before. Uh, so on the back, there is a clipboard. Uh, I'm going to extend the Ruth series. So if there's anything that, that has been helpful, any topics, any themes, any ideas that we have not fleshed out enough, um, write it on the uh, clipboard and write your name. And we'll do several of them as long as it's uh, helpful. There's some great themes in here. And so as we get into the practical, I'm going to give you some options, uh, some ideas that we can, that we can talk about. Um, and if you have longer feedback, I'd love to hear it. Just email me. Um, so my email is on there too. But um, hopefully that will be helpful. So if you've got feedback, if you've got suggestions, man, Pastor Tim, I wish you talked about this more. Here's your chance. Speak now or forever hold your peace because if you don't write it on there, it's not happening. Um, and I can't guarantee we're going to get to them all, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. All right, so let's think about us. So let's read back through, let's walk back through the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth, from our own perspective. How many of us have wandered off into our own pleasures and comforts, thinking that the grass is greener in that spot over there that just happens to be further away from the Lord and the people of the Lord? Anyone else? All of the family of Elimelech go there. Ruth and Naomi make it back. But Elimelech and his sons do not. How many of us, when we go after our own comforts and we go after our own pleasures, when we set up camp in Moab, we realize how miserable it is there. And realize there's nothing but death and disappointment here. I should have stayed where the Lord provided for me in the first place. How many of us in Moab does the Lord call back for his people? Hey, there's bread in Bethlehem. The Lord provides for his people. Come back. He tells us where there's food. One of my favorite gospel quotes, you know, that evangelism and uh, sharing the gospel is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Word had reached Moab that there's bread in, in, in Bethlehem. Come back to the living God. But because that requires faith, how many have started the journey with us from Moab back to Bethlehem? And it gets hard on the way. And realizes that, oh, wait a second. This is not going to get easier. It's going to get harder before it gets easier. I kind of like my chances back in Moab. And they turn back. How many Orpahs have we known? But those who commit to follow Christ, who leave all that they have behind, who pledge their lives to him, like Ruth, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. How many of those people regret it? How many of those people does not the Lord redeem, restore, and bless Far beyond what they left behind. Jesus tells us in John chapter 12. This won't be on the screen. I added this this morning. John chapter 12, verses 25 and 26.
There's a similar version in Mark and in Matthew. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for, will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the call of the Christian life. John chapter 12, 25 and 26. Does your love for Christ look like hate for your life here? Or is it hard for you to tell? Better yet, ask your family and your friends, can they tell? Is it clear to them that you have died to yourself, that you have lost your life because our Savior promises eternal life? Are you a servant of the Lord? Are you where he is? Like Ruth, where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I live. Where you die, I die. That is our call to Christ. He told us plainly that if you serve me, if you follow me, don't worry about the, what the world promises. My heavenly Father will honor you. The riches of his glorious grace will be lavished upon you. And we need to be reminded to turn and repent often. Why? Because Moab has a megaphone. And Moab's, Moab knows what itch we need scratched. The lies of this world know exactly what to tell us. But the promises of God stand. They never change and they never fail. This is how we read the gospel personally into this story. And we can go on. There's another practical application for us. Like Ruth, we don't always know where our physical or spiritual provision is going to come from. We don't. There have been many times, for many of us in this room, we didn't know how we were going to pay our bills. You may be there right now. We didn't know if the Lord is going to keep feeding me spiritually. I'm struggling right now. I feel like I'm drying up in my soul. Where is food going to come from? But we learn from the example of Ruth, who humbly gets to work. And what does she do? She goes and gleans, she takes the leftovers of those who've walked before her, and she leaves the field with more than she picked herself. If that's not a picture of discipleship, I don't know what is. Let me rephrase that. Here's what discipleship looks like. I don't know how to feed myself in the faith. You've been walking with Christ more than I have, longer than I have. Can I follow behind you? Can I pick up scraps from your table? Can I learn a little bit from, from you? I, I'm going to learn this from you and learn this from, from you. I'm going to walk behind the, the, the gleaners. And I've just been kind of walking and working, just kind of, you know, picking up what, what, what they're putting down. And by the end of it, I got more than I can carry. Many of us who struggle to grow in Christ, who are you walking behind? Who are you gleaning with? Look around the room. When you walk with brothers and sisters in Christ, you learn from many of them, you grow. And by the end of the day, by the end of the walk, you're like, where did all this grain come from? I didn't pick this. But we picked before you and someone picked before us. 
there's, there's another great application. If we're honest, following Christ often feels pointless, like I'm going to walk into some random field and hope, hope everything turns out, out well. Or it often seems foolish, like I'm going to go lay down at some dude's feet in the middle of the night. But we know that God is sovereign. And with our God, nothing is random. Nothing is pointless. Nothing is foolish for those who humble themselves before him. Because our God has humbled himself for us. Because of what he's done for us, we will gladly look like fools before the world. Laying before the feet of a man doesn't seem like much when our Savior let them drive nails in his feet. So that he could put every nation under his feet. And every nation will bow before those feet or under those feet. And that's the same one who tells us to take up our cross and follow him. As foolish as it sounds to the world, it is glorious for those who believe. Because we know that the message of the gospel, it is folly to the world. If you're, if you're perishing, we're just a bunch of idiots. And we of all people should be pitied. But if we have faith, it is life. And it is power. And it is comfort and it is hope. Ruth is also a story of uh, what you leave behind versus what you gain. To the world, it's silly. Why would you leave behind the creature comforts that you can see for the God you can't? This is a reminder that we are to live by faith and not by sight. Because the world that lives by sight would never do that. I need everything planned out. I need everything that's going to meet my needs right now. But we have a God who makes promises. The world makes promises, but our God makes promises, irrevocable promises. And he promises that whoever leaves mother and father, sister and brother, land and homes for me, I will restore 30, 60, or 100 fold in this life and the life to come. It's foolishness to the world, but for those who center their life around the things of God and the people of God, the Lord blesses us in spiritual and material ways. More than we can recount. We can go on. Boaz and Ruth are great examples of serving and loving one another. We serve. We, we care for, for people to get nothing out of it. Because this is what Christ has done for us. Like Ruth, we didn't belong. Like Ruth, our Redeemer welcomed us in. He didn't have to serve us. He didn't owe us anything. But he came to serve. He came to lay his life down. That is why we do that for each other. And we respond like Ruth and Boaz in that. We once were slaves to righteousness. Excuse me, slaves to sin. Serving death in our own pleasures. Now, we get to be slaves to righteousness. Servants of the living God. Remember what Jesus promised us in John? You serve me, you, you are where I am, my Father will honor you. And so, 
in the body of Christ, that's why we serve each other with a smile on, your, on, on our faces. And if you don't, you should. Because we are just following in our Savior's footsteps. We are showing each other the love that has been shown us. This leads us to a type of service, hospitality. Uh, this is a, this, we didn't even touch on this in the book. Hospitality literally means love of a stranger. And so I want you to think about how, how hard it was for Ruth. Going to Bethlehem for the first time, she looked different, she dressed and spoke differently than everyone else in Bethlehem. And this was in a time that was not as accepting as ours. She had a different history, she had a different culture, and she had a different experience. Think of how awkward it is for someone to walk into a church for the first time. It's like walking into someone else's living room and everyone knows where everything is, and everyone's having all these inside conversations, and you're like, what am I doing here? Um, do you realize that church people, we have our own vocabulary? Do you realize that there's, we have our own expectation of dress and behavior, and not everybody got the memo? It breaks my heart when I hear people go to church after church after church and don't get welcomed and feel like they don't belong or people care more about what they're wearing or how they talk than if they know Christ or not. And so when we think about Boaz welcoming in Ruth, we should think to ourselves, is our church and is our, and are our homes places where outsiders are welcomed? Do we bring in people who don't belong to our little circles? Do we bring in people, the ones who are probably not the easiest to love or to like, who may be very different than us, that's hard. People who are like us, who like the same things, who talk the same way, that's easy. But true hospitality is love of a stranger. And we do that well. I love that our members love one another. But, it's, but once you've gotten comfortable and you've got your little click, it's kind of hard to, to, uh, to uh, let someone else in. And so I just want to encourage us, like, are, are we known for that? Are we patient and gracious with those who uh, are attending for the first time, maybe coming from a different church tradition, or maybe have never stepped foot in a church before? And so if you are here and if you are new, uh, don't leave right after the service. We'd love to get to know you, wouldn't we? And this is a good time to put this into, uh, into uh, practice. Someone's really excited about that. <laughs> All right, um, I, I want to land on a... Um, couple just personal sketches so we're going to go one step further um get a little more personal here this these might hit a little closer to home um because christ not only redeems our souls he redeems our circumstances notice at the end of this story neither ruth nor boaz nor naomi is known by their their shortcomings or their previous failings uh first um Boaz is an old man. This is not said in the text, but it's kind of understood. He's an old single man. We don't know how long Boaz has been single, but old enough to make a contrast between him and the young men. What did Boaz not do? He did not wring his hands and throw a pity, throw a pity party like Naomi did. What did Boaz do? He had no idea what was to come, but he trusted the Lord and he went to work. He honored the Lord with his labors. He honored the Lord with his wealth. He was generous and compassionate with those in his path. 
and the Lord used him in a mighty way. And he's remembered for all time for his faithfulness. Single men, can the same be said about you? Men in general, can the same be said about us? That we trust the Lord, we work hard, we honor him with our wealth, with our status, with our labors, and we are generous and compassionate to whoever who the Lord puts in our path. That is a man's man in the Bible. Ruth, the unwelcome, unclean nobody. There was no expectation of hope for her. She walked in faith. She honored her mother. She had no expectation of a good life. She was childless for at least 10 years. And the Lord gave her more than she could ever ask or imagine. So, you feel outcast this morning? You feel like you don't fit? You feel alone like, man, the Lord could never use anybody like me. He, use, he uses prostitutes and widows from Moab. He can use you. He calls the outcast, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. And he redeems them. And her little faithfulness is remembered all throughout history. We're still studying her as an example. Not because she was born into anything special. We don't even know what she looked like. But we know how she served and we know how she loved. And so right along with that, single women, could the same be said for you? Diligent and faithful, honoring your, your parents. There's another practical application here. The Lord uses godly unions to bless his people for generations. Think about it. By bringing Boaz and Ruth together, it is still an example to us. We are still being blessed by the child of the child of the child. The nation of Israel was blessed. Now, we won't have our names written in sacred scripture. The, the, the canon is closed. But when we honor the Lord in our marriage, when we honor the Lord with our wives, our husbands, our, our children, think of what a great impact that has. How many godly men and women have had an impact on you? How have you benefited and been blessed by just watching godly marriages? Celebrating with those who celebrate. And we have the opportunity to bless future generations, not because of our efforts, because it is ultimately the chesed, the steadfast love, the covenant faithfulness of the Lord that will do this. His loving kindness never ceases to his people. Uh, back in Ruth 2.20, when Naomi blesses the Lord, here's what she says. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, the Lord whose kindness, whose chesed has not forsaken the living or the, the, living or the dead. These saints are long dead and gone. Think about how many saints who are dead, who are with the Lord now, are still blessing us. Mothers, 
grandmothers, pastors, aunts, uncles, theologians. The Lord is faithful to the living and the dead. Even when we die in Christ, he can and still does use our efforts. We can still have an impact. I want to land on Naomi before we go to the table. The Lord used Naomi as well. And um, if we can relate to anyone in the story, it's Naomi. Because even when she remembered that God was sovereign, forgot that he was good, which we can often do, he was still good to her because his character was not dependent on hers. I think so many of us make that mistake that we think because we are faithless and we are whiners and we're complainers and we're bitter that God must be too. Praise God he doesn't shift like we do. But he sent her a redeemer too. He took her emptiness and he filled it. Our God cares and loves for people, whether it's the content like Boaz or the complainers like Naomi. One and the same, he cares for his people. Christ turns our emptiness into fullness and he turns our bitterness into joy. The last thing we hear about Naomi is that she is a joyful grandmother. Praise God that he redeems not only our souls but also our circumstances. And so as we get ready to approach the table, remember that this table reminds us and guarantees us that in Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, in our kinsman Redeemer, who is sovereign Lord and gracious God, we are full. We are complete in him. And this is for our joy, for our pleasure, for our encouragement, but also for our marching orders that we go out and serve and love and be hospitable in his name because we want to welcome as many people to his table as we can. So I'll give you a few moments to prepare for the table and Pastor Jesse will lead us.